Welcome back to Consuming the Craft Podcast. This is Puff. You could laughing at me already. This is Puff. I'm talking to Kevin Sandy, one of the stalwarts of the beverage consumable industry. Because I say that because you've worked in so many different fields, done so many different things. And now we're going to go back to when you were five, starting in the industry in 1990. Started very young. I don't want to date you is what I'm trying to say. I don't uh, want people, people know your age. <laughs> oh, feel free to date me. I'm, pr- <laughs> I'm proud of my age at this point. Okay, so we were just talking about you uh, You went to school, you followed the Grateful Dead around Yes. Uh, to learn more about yourself and music. And that was probably my uh, intro to craft beer. Uh, craft beer was on, or back then, microbrewed beer, was on Dead Tour long before it was anywhere else. Well, and, and there wasn't very many things to choose. I, re- I I bartended then, right? So it was one of those things where, what do you want? A Bud or Bud Light? Yeah. You know, and when that stuff finally came in, and then on that tour, you got to go all over the country and see all these other little places. Yes. And a, and a lot of the people were coming from the West Coast to tour on the East Coast and bring in Sierra Nevada Bigfoots with them and, and, and other beers from the West Coast, Anchor Steam. So that was kind of your foray. And then you decided to jump head first into the industry? So uh, after one of the tours, we ended up in Portland, Oregon, and I was working in a little sandwich shop in 93. And that was during what I call the first big microbrewery boom. It it really was, yeah. And the owner decided he was going to put in a little three-barrel brew system because everybody had breweries in their restaurants. And he said, wait, I need somebody to make the beer. Do you want to make the beer? And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. (laughs) Um, So dumb luck. Dumb luck. It, it, more dumb luck was a local brewer from Pyramid Brewing was one of our customers and saw the equipment coming in and took me under his wing and mentored me. So I had, wow. I had professional mentorship pretty early on. And I think it, now going back, Craft Beverage Institute of the Southeast, we teach here. We're trying to set up more of an apprentice style kind of things that are happening as far as education and growth and kind of some of the things that we've been working on. Uh, NC apprenticeship, you know, if you're a brewery, a winery, cidery, distillery, shout out to them and we can try to get you a student. And I would love to, the the job is hands-on as you very well know. Mm -hmm. You can read a book on how to drive a car. That doesn't mean you know how to drive a car. doesn't mean you know how to brew. That's right. So you got to come here and do it. So you had a great mentor from the get-go. You brewed there for how long? And then what'd you do next? So I spent probably a year there brewing and we decided to move back to the East Coast because we had a child. And on my way back to the East Coast, I stopped at Siebel and did their short course in brewing technology and then got hired right out of, right out of Siebel. I mean, there wasn't a lot of uh, available, educated experience no, with brewers it, well, back then. It, and then it was blowing up. I mean, you hit it right, right perfect timing, yes. really, honestly. Yes. You know, stopped in Chicago, did the short course, and then boom. Where did you work then next? Uh, I, I worked at a Stout's Brewing Company in Adamstown, Pennsylvania. Wow. So basically, you started a brewery, then worked at Stout's after a little bit of education, and then where'd you move on? For, how long did you work at Stout's? Only a year. Okay. <laughs> I'm very nomadic. Um, <laughs> well, you followed the dead for a while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Look, shiny colors. Let's go that way. <laughs> exactly. And actually, in the industry, that during that period, it was. Brewers were bouncing around a lot trying yes. to figure out. And, it's, you know, with, with the pay scale back then, the grass looked a lot greener and was maybe a little bit greener. Well, and, and people were trying to figure out what they liked and, like, the culture. And, like, yeah. they, a lot of that stuff hadn't been established either. No. So you're you're trying to educate so many people in the area that you're at too. It must have been exhausting. Yeah, and we we le- I left Stouts mainly because it was in Adamstown, Pennsylvania, which was out in the middle of nowhere. 
And my wife was going crazy because she was a stay-at-home mom and with a kid oh, out in the no, country. Yeah. yeah. And, and then I, I, I saw a job open up in my old hometown of Wilmington, North Carolina. And I, I thought that was going to be it for me. I was like, I'm going to go open this brewery in Wilmington, North Carolina and build out my career there and just and just live there. And that's it. Yeah. You know, that was it. Got my own brewery and do the whole thing. Yep. And then that ended up closing. That was 95, 96. I did that through about 2000. And it was, it was premature. You know, Wilmington is just, it's almost like Asheville now with craft breweries. It is. I mean, it has blown up. Back then, Wilmington was a natural light town. So they, they were not ready for... For the nightlife for, at all. For, for craft brewing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so it, 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 it ended up getting bought out. And then that gentleman moved it to Farmville. It's now Duck Rabbit. So it still exists. Yes. It still exists, but it's just a different place. Huh? Yes. So Interesting. He moved all the equipment and and everything up to Farmville uh, for financial reasons. I imagine the rent and stuff at Wilmington was probably pretty absurd. Rent and the wastewater was a huge issue. We were getting hammered with wastewater fines. Yeah, yeah, you were being that close to the coast. Yeah, I didn't they, even think about that. Their their uh their wastewater system was at the about the maximum capacity when you had to expand. So they, oh. they were really leaning on so, us. Okay, so then they charge you to pay for the new water treatment exactly. plant, basically. <laughs> that's what, ha- I mean, that's not to say that that doesn't happen everywhere, but, you know, when you have those tourist towns like that and they expect, they build 90 hotels and there's one brewery. Yeah. You know, toilets are still flushing at those hotels, folks. And I, I ended up uh, with my wastewater treatment license through all that. So there was a, there was a period where I had a, a wastewater treatment license and I could operate wastewater treatment plants in the state of North Carolina. Wow. So you've diversified already. <laughs> yeah, I've already diversified. So, so then that place closed. Where did you move after Wilmington? So interestingly enough, uh, we tried. We had just bought a house when that all moved and closed. I oh, got, perfect timing, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. And he wanted me to move with the company. And I was like, I just, I'm not into Farmville because it was another middle of the nowhere you, 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 But you had done that already. Yeah. You really had. Um, and I ended up with a job at Corning Incorporated. They got a big fiber optic plant there. So I worked in the fiber optic plant for a, a year again. <laughs> um, well, uh, the interview, uh, we'll see. Uh, you yeah. get, I'm just kidding. So I worked there uh, for a year, and that was around 2000, 2001, when the big first, uh, I guess, in my adult life, big economic downturn, and they just laid off hundreds and hundreds of us. And you were the new one. And I was, yeah, I was, yeah. Like, I was the new one. And then I ended up uh, getting a job with Dogfish Head. Up in Maryland. Uh, Delaware. In Delaware? Okay. Um, I spent my high school years in Delaware, and then my wife was from Delaware. So we moved back up to Delaware, and I worked at Dogfish Head for five years. And But you didn't just brew beer there. You also told me that you did some distillation for them as well. I did some distillation, but only for a short period. Um, I was working there on, on the brewing side, and the distiller left, and I ran this still for like two months till we found somebody yeah. else come in. So yeah. it was but great. It's a different change of pace, right? Yeah. Running a still as opposed to doing production style brewing. Yeah. yeah. The whole fermentation process was different. Completely different. Different priorities in fermentation. Yeah, really. Yeah. It, it's a, it's an interesting, you know, when people come here cause we're brewing distillation and fermentation they're like, it, you know, if I can brew beer, I can make, eh, it's, it, it, no, there's a lot of subtle nuances in between the fermentation schedules and what you're trying to coax out of the yeast to then make precursors of flavor. That's what's happening in the maturation process. It's just a different mindset. It is. It's it w- a dirty, it's much dirtier. Yeah. That's a good I, I mean, it is, it's, it's not, you don't get, you don't want like that single cell or a single culture fermentation. You want kind of like, you want some funk. 
Yeah. And then, you know, it's it's hard to get away from those practices that you had done for years. And then they're like, no, just let it go, man. Yeah, it was <laughs> like, warm and fast. Yeah. Like we want it fermented in two days. Yeah. And you're like, well, that's going to throw off a bunch of, yeah, that's, we, then we're going to mature, maturate. So Dogfish Head, you did all sorts of things there. Yeah, I started out there as the uh, packaging manager, and then I kind of became a jack of all trades, doing a uh, little seller work, um, QC work. I started setting up a more formal quality program. Uh, I never got too far in that because about the time that started, some uh, one of the brewers left, and I ended up working in the brew house on a shift, and I did that there for a year. So I, I was kind of a jack of all trades at Dogfish Head. So you left Dogfish Head to do what? I left Dogfish Head and left the industry for a while, for like seven years. Took a break. Took a break from the industry and ended up working in behavioral health for about seven years. Now, that's still the industry. Sorry. Yeah. just it's, <laughs> Knowing the people in this industry, that's this industry. Yeah. It, I ended up um, as a credentialed therapist for seven <laughs> what years. What an amazing career so far. So get, getting uh, people off of it. Was not yeah. as, not as lucrative as getting people on it. No, but it's a lot harder too. <laughs> it's a lot harder. It's really easy to get people on it. It's harder to like stop it. Yeah. I uh, but but the skills I learned and the training I had from that industry has, has served me when I came back because I'm in a, been in leadership capacity. So management so, all the time. Yeah. yeah. So it, dealing with people instead of production, you're still dealing with production, but you're really managing people at this point. Yeah. The, my last. What have I been? Uh, seven, eight years in the industry ha- has been in leadership positions, building teams, yeah, and, so and that behavioral health stuff. What made you get back? Seven, okay, so the thing is, you said like seven years. That's the longest you I think you've been anywhere. But that being said, there's something called the seven year itch, and it, it, it's like as an adult human, you, every seven years you need something kind of dramatically changing in your professional career, your personal career. You know, you guys had a kid. I mean, there's a lot of things that can change, or you find another hobby, you find another passion. Uh, even like law enforcement officers, they, if you're working the beat, they move you to somewhere else. So you don't, you have to have that change. And so after seven years, you got back into the industry because you hate money or what? (laughs) (laughs) All those careers, I mean, was a hate of money. Uh, but if you look at, uh, Behavioral health. Seven years is about the burnout period. It is working well, in behavioral that health. Seven year itch, though. Yeah. It's it's really in a lot of industries when you talk about that burnout period. Like you can help people for a long time, but it's 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 very taxing on you. Yes, it is. It is, and and I was very uh, I cared, which made it even more taxing. I really cared right, about you my took people. It home. Yeah, you uh, took it home, and that you, absolutely that you get these the separation between church and state, right? Yeah. So you got back into the industry and you started working where at Highland. At Highland Brewing Company. For your very own John Lydon. Wow. <laughs> the John Lydon. He probably saw Siebel on your resume. I was like, yeah, another Siebel grad. He's going to be great. Yeah. The the I'm, John Lydon. I'm a UC Davis guy. I'll be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> so we, we hit the sharks into jets here. We knife fight in the hallway. Uh, so then you got back to Highland. And what did you do there, Brew? I was shift shift brewer. Okay. Yeah. Just rotating shifts. So <laughs> and, and I did that. Um, mainly to, to knock the rust off. I was yeah. like, I, I was like, I can't get back in the industry and just go be a head brewer or, or something somewhere. No, else. it wouldn't make much. Yeah, you know, I I like it. So 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 I did it for a year, and it was obvious after about a year that I was overqualified, for lack of a better no, I mean way to put it. Yeah, um, from all my experience. Yep. And there's that pattern of it of one year again. <laughs> <laughs> no, but then where'd you go? I went to a uh, Catawba. You shook the rust off. Then you were at Catawba. What'd you do there? So I started out as the head brewer. Yep. And they were. And doing, I remember when you got that job. Yeah. Yeah. 
They were very excited to have you. Were they? Good. Yes, they were. Believe, <laughs> believe it or not. Believe it or not. They probably would never tell you that. Yeah. No, no, my five years there was some of my greatest five years in the industry. Good, good people. I, I really enjoyed working yeah. for the Pyatts. They, yeah. they were so fun. So I, I don't know how many barrels a year. I think the first year we did 2,500 barrels. And then five years later, by the time I left, maybe we were doing 20 Um but the key there was the location. So I started there at Morganson location. I helped open the Asheville location. I helped open the Charlotte location. And then we acquired the Charleston location. So I was overseeing production at those four locations and traveling between. That's a lot of movement. Between all of them. Yeah. And trying to keep uh, herding cats, we'll say. Yeah. At that point. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot, of, lot to learn. You know, especially when you're overtaking or having opening a new location, not everything works the same as the old location or, you know, the, the flavor profile that other people like there. But, I mean, you guys had your flagship and you made a lot of that. And then after five years, you moved from Catawba to... Uh, what was then uh, Bucci Kombucha. So you, you completely moved away from beer mm -hmm. and started fermenting out kombucha. Yes. And they, and kind of... They hired me because they were getting ready to do the same thing. They were, they were rolling about 2,500 barrels and they had all this, all these private label contracts in place and they, they had- They were ready to blow up and they, they did blow up. And they blew and, up. They, they Huge. And that, so I took them from like 2,500 barrels, at, I don't know, maybe 65,000 when I left three and a half years later. That's insane. It's- How fast that growth happened. And, and that was, a, what was the learning curve like going from beer- single culture, pure stuff, maybe some sour stuff you guys did, maybe you didn't, but going from that to doing a SCOBY and working with this jellyfish of an organism that just does its own thing at times. So I, I was lucky that we had a really good uh, head brewer there already, Caitlin, and then Janine, the owner, already had a handle on that. They're, they're sharp. And I still don't quite understand it. <laughs> I don't think, honestly, I don't think anybody 100% understands it. And because there's so many things that happen in the microbiology world in those little cultures that it's just insane. And you can't just take it in a lab like beer and plate it and be like, oh, we're growing no, lacto. there's a thousand things in yeah. it. Everything we didn't want in beer, we wanted in that stuff. <laughs> right. And that would, like, that, that would keep me up at night. And like, that would just drive me nuts. And what kept me up at night there was... Yeah, I didn't know what was going on and you couldn't figure out what was going on. Yeah. And you just had to trust the process. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, it's wait. Yeah. Like, yeah, it doesn't taste right now, but maybe tomorrow. But, um, it, it, and so standardizing a lot of that learning, learning that whole process must have been incredible. Learning the process. And like I said, that we those guys were already doing it really well. So I was more of a nuts and bolts. Like expansion. Expansion. We need to make more. But we did have to scale that process. And, you know, that was like, we're scaling this from fermenting 15 barrels to... I mean, when I left there, there were 800 barrel fermenters. So we had- 800? I had no idea. Uh, yeah. Some of the mixing tanks there are 900 barrels where they take all the different fermentations. And, and blend them, them together? Yeah. yeah there, there are 900 barrel tanks out there. There's a big outdoor tank farm now. Wow. That that was the question. Can we scale it? So we did it slowly. You know, we got some bigger tanks. And so what were the, what were the he maybe it's proprietary, but what were some of the headaches when you're going from, I mean, a lot of people are making this in a gallon jar uh, on their- tabletop right and then they're going from those gallon jars to five gallon batches to what they did because they started kind of in a basement somewhere they started uh well they were doing it at home and then they were here they were here at blue Ridge food ventures because yeah. i remember talking to them they talked to a class a while back they were phenomenal just super super uh, uh knowledgeable about what they were doing but like 
once you get a vessel that big and the temperature and like the mixing and all the other stuff, that had to have been nuts to scale just like the tea and everything else that would go into it. You know, that was like any other brewery yeah. scaling project, just bigger tanks or maxing out the tanks you have. Yeah, and material handling and just running shifts yeah. and, and throwing lots of labor at it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> until you do get the equipment. And then, of course, the sales are there, but you don't have the equipment. So you don't you don't have the money for the equipment yet. Yeah, you know. Oh, it's always the, the egg and the horse and the chicken and egg and all that. Yeah. It's nuts because you can go out and sell it all, but you can't. Uh, and that brings me to Booze Clues. Because you were uh, you were were in the tea industry, and I wanted to throw you for a curveball, so we're gonna try uh, something from my friend Sarah Stender from Cirilla. It's a tea company. I just uh, did a podcast with her, so you guys should go back and listen to that. But I'd be curious to see what you smell and taste inside of this, because it is a carbonated tea product. I poured it in a uh, a wine glass of sorts. Uh, you said when we kind of talked a while back, like if you don't practice your sensory. It's you kind of you kind of lose it a little bit. It's something where you got to talk that vocabulary and talk the talk. So you're you now switched industries again, mm-hmm. kind of. You're still still making beverages, uh, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic. But uh, I'd be curious to see what you smell and taste in this particular one because this is one of my favorites that she makes. Yeah, and this one, I'm it, the the tea is is real evident that it's tea. Yeah, and it says ginger on it i'm not getting a whole lot of ginger and it's funny and here's why i think that's funny because now you're working with ginger's revenge and ginger's revenge is a is a, an amazing uh if you like ginger get some of this stuff because it is a it is a healthy dose of ginger balanced out with some of the other things you guys put in different brands but there's a, enough ginger that this doesn't seem as gingery to me as the products you guys make yeah, I may be oversaturated with ginger, so it's why. Yeah, and the white tea itself is a very interesting tea. There's a lot of uh, articles to read about the benefits of um, it helps burn fat and all this other stuff, but it's a really delicate part of the tea plant when they when they harvest it and, and uh, dry it out. But I, like, I, always, I think there's a, a really nice kind of flavor and smell to this particular product. It, it's interesting. I can't quite put my finger on no, it. No, and it, I, if you read the ingredients, and there's a can right there, you can read the ingredients on the side of the can. It's all... It's all very healthy. I mean, it's if you wanted something that's carbonated and not overly sweet, I think this one is sweetened with monk fruit, which is you know, all natural sweetener. It's it's just it's easy drinking. It's pleasant. Yeah, that that's a, yeah, it's super pleasant. And it's these were basically at room temperature, so as it gets a little colder, it's it's even more. Not that it's not refreshing now, but I think you know you get done mowing the lawn and you grab for that kind of effervescent a little bit of sweetness, a little bit of like revitalizing energy. I think this is a, a great product. And the carbonation's good too. It's not overly carbonated. No, it's not a, you know, the, as you know, the carbonation changes the way it balances on your tongue and you don't want to get it too tart or, or too uh, carbonic. Yeah. The acid, the acid flavor balances out well, I think. I don't, yeah. I don't think this would be good at like a full soda level where it's no. just like tingling all over or, your or mouth. Or champagne or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. So, I alluded to the fact that you are now in the soda and alcoholic ginger beer. So you worked at uh, worked in kombucha for a while, and then you went over to Ginger's Revenge and started helping out expand their production as well. Yeah, the uh, and Ginger's Revenge. It, it's interesting because it's almost been a blend of what I learned from kombucha and beer, like coming together. It, it kind of is, right? It's almost like I was training for this job the whole time. <laughs> The last 20 some odd years you've been in the industry? Or at least the last uh, six or seven. Yeah. Um, 
because you know the fermentations are different than malt based, but hundred percent. But it's not a a, a kombucha fermentation. Um, but we're moving towards uh, expanding there and the first big project there, which is I've, I've, I used to joke with Billy. I'm like at, at Catawba, when are we going to stop expanding and just start making beer? <laughs> but I've I found out about myself over the past few years that I enjoy the expansion part. I, I think that you like to solve the puzzle. Yes. You like to put that puzzle together is what just by hearing you talking like I, that's that's the exciting part for me. Yes. I actually helped uh, Sarah design some of that stuff here. So it was like, how do we get what she was doing, you know, for a draft product in a can and make it shelf stable and make it clean? And, and the first project here was uh, a new flash pasteurizer. Yeah. Which was a fun project to put together. And it, it came together really nicely. It's running really well. So what's next for you? Not just at Ginger's. I mean, where do you see yourself? Well, what do you want? What do you want to be when you grow up, Kevin? <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, the dead's gone, but he can't follow uh, that. Are you gonna? Yeah. Well, we've been uh, we polyphonic will, spree. Or well, are you gonna follow uh, them around? Or? Well, my wife and I have been doing a lot of fish shows lately. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So we, uh, yeah, we just got back. Well, not just got back. We're in Atlantic City over the summer, and then uh, we go to Mexico every year and see fish for four nights. Oh, awesome! And then uh, stay there afterwards for like a week, and. I, and I just fell in love with that area. So even if uh, fish quit playing there, we, we'll keep. We'll going. still go down we'll, there. Every we'll year. still go down there yeah. every year. I got into a scuba diving real big down there. I'm a former rescue recovery diver. Oh, did not know that. Yeah, we'll have to talk about that yeah. a little bit later. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> but um, I don't know if you're familiar with what's called the cenotes. They're the caves yeah. down there. Yeah. Uh, I've been trying to work towards my cave diving uh, training. You're nuts. So I can. Uh, so I can. Uh, dive further i've already dove some of the cenotes but i want to dive deeper into them yeah they go under 100 well they're, they're super shallow it's just you're back in a cave yeah so there's, what's the deepest you've been the deepest i've been has been uh 117 feet okay and that was actually in a, one of the few cenotes that are that deep cenotes yeah. of Bote. so that's awesome we'll have to uh, talk about diving that wait let's get back to fo- i could talk about diving all day but um so Ginger's Revenge, what's the next new fun thing there after the Flash Pasteurizer? So the, the the thing we're really working on now is a ginger soda. And then what's interesting that you brought these teas is we have a, a Tulsi peppermint tea that we're R&D in. Really? Yes. So that that should be... Uh, so she, Sarah's also got uh, a tract for Cerebus. You guys should look into that as well. Hmm, I shouldn't have said that. She's going to be mad at me now. <laughs> you should contact her. She could get you Tulsi. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. What do you think you've been in? This is this is the the linchpin of the whole industry right here. You've worked in so many different areas. What do you think the next big thing will be? It, know, it doesn't have to be in beer. I mean, just in beverage in general, because I see it, 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 there's just so much happening right now in this industry. I have no idea what the next big thing is going to be, but it's always a discussion from a business perspective. Like you, you see somebody come out with something and everybody kind of tags onto it and burn it out. And then the question for me is, how do you figure out what the next big thing is going to be? And how do you, how do you get ahead of it? How do you make the next big thing? Yeah. And be the head of it, be the tip of the spear and and make your money. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And you know, the imitation is a serious form of flattery. And that's where a lot of this, you know, dilution of some of these things that have recently come out has, I've seen. Uh, yeah, it's just a, a curiosity to see where this industry is going to go. Yeah, I never saw the whole hazy thing. Hazy thing I did. I, we call it lazy brewing here. 
and I, you, you, you know production. I mean, you think it was like, oh, I forgot to add something to this tank to clarify it. We need to put it on draft. No, I think it, it was probably maybe that. But, that but, some, someone made a but mistake. But I've, I've always, well, my theory is that somebody was putting out, needed the beer in it six days and they crashed the tank and just packaged it. It's like. That's, and honestly, people, that's brilliant too. I, I, I strongly believe that those guys up in Vermont, with the, uh, the topper guys, yeah, I think, I think I, that's what they probably did. Yeah, the heady topper. Yeah, and alchemist. that's purely speculation. I'm no, not saying that's what they did. But, but you see, oh, like I put beers on tap and I was like, man, there's, I got to get, I have to fill a tap. What am I going to do? And, and, and. I say it because I've done it. 100%. You, know? you, you do it. You push it. And then there's like all the these, then the juicy, I, I mean, all this stuff it coming down and then now ready to drink stuff, RTDs, uh, and how that's expanded. And it's just, I'm very curious to see what, and then the seltzer thing hit, right? I wouldn't have predicted that. And then COVID kind of hit. And so you can't just, it wasn't just a tap room you could have. You, you can't just open a tap room and have people go there because they shut down the tap room. And that was kind of the, if you build it, they will come kind of a mentality, but you couldn't do that for two years. Yeah. So you had to package, you had to diversify, you had to uh, figure out how you could get people to take it to go, even if you're a small place. And it was just a very strange time in the industry. We, so I was at uh, Bucci, which is now Fed Up Foods during that period. And we actually, we kept chugging along. I think we might've even grown I mentioned, yeah, you guys had all that shelf stable product because it was uh, considered a health beverage, yeah. or kombucha is considered a health beverage. Yep. So, uh, and and that's another funny thing, you know, beer beer spikes in the summer, and then we're slow in the winter. Uh, kombucha spiked in January when everybody was doing their New Year's resolutions, <laughs> <laughs> and there's still a small amount of alcohol in it, right? That, very not enough, like to, less than 0.5. Yeah, not enough. to yeah, yeah, speak yeah. to. So. so it's just it's it's funny. Yeah, <laughs> let's get that Jan- dry January, sober October. Uh, Dry July, that was a new one I heard this year. That sober curious movement and people making mocktails, that's been a curious thing, like uh, non-alcoholic gin. Someone's selling a bottle of non-alcoholic gin. I won't tell you the company name. We could tell you off mic, but for like 40 bucks a bottle. A 750 milliliter bottle of botanical water for $40. Wow. Brilliant. I have... I wished I would have came up with it myself. Or just some of these flavored waters. Yeah. I mean, you buy a giant bright tank, you carbonate some water, you dump some whatever they're dumping in it and bottle it and can it. Yeah. Done. It's amazing. I have enjoyed trying all the uh, non-alcoholic beers, but after I've gone through trying them, I'm kind of like, why am I going to go to a bar and spend six bucks on a non-alcoholic beer when I can just drink water? Yeah. That's... Yeah. It's been fun go trying them though. That's and for sure. and honestly the technology has gotten so much better and those beers have gotten a lot better. And that, they have. It's just you know it's it's one of the yeah, I'm not going to pay $6 at a bar for for something. I, I I just don't I can't justify it. Yeah. Cuz at the end of the day, it it's they're all just alcohol delivery systems. 100%. All of them are. Yep. So I what, mean technically even this tea could be if we're mixing it with something else. Yeah. But it, you know, it's just interesting to see the trends in the industry and like the new generation and what they're discovering. And what they're drinking, whether it's whiskey, that's the next thing. I know tequila is really hot right now because of all these celebrities making their own brands and people getting in a lot. But it's all kind of in waves and kind of comes around in full circle. So ah, I was just curious to what you see as, I, as I, you've seen such a swath of the industry. It was, and I, you know, and I've been mostly on the production side. I haven't really had my finger on the what no, goes on in the market. The sales guys come to the production guys and go, "You got to make this," and you go, "We, we can't. Yeah. We don't have any of this stuff." 
I don't even know where to find it. And that's always a challenge, too, it with is. some of this crazy stuff is scaling it. You know, you come up with this and it's super easy to do a couple kegs of it, but when you need uh, to scale it. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's always those uh, cucumber saisons. That was one of my favorite stories over at Wicked Weed. They're like, oh, we could peel 70 pounds of cucumber yeah. for this little batch. Well, now they're peeling. They had three people peeling eight totes of cucumber for eight hours a day. Could you imagine peeling no. And then, I mean, they've, they've since found a cucumber puree and they've, they've done some things that like, but just scaling that up, like you said, there's, you have this great recipe, but like you, you can't make 800 barrels of that. There's no way you gotta, you gotta think of a different way to go about getting that same flavor and, and not and keep the same quality and keep the same flavor. So yeah, that's always a challenge. Really reaching across the industry and the food processing is what we're doing to, cause you got to make all these purees and all these, you're dealing with all these food products. You're just putting it in a beverage, but yeah, yeah you're having to bring in the technology before we were just crap brewers, you know, you had a lotter ton, a boil kettle, some fermenters. Yeah. Now you got to worry about the viscosity that's going to be coming out of this puree. Can I pump it even with the pump I have? Yeah. So it's, yeah, there's a lot of process things that are going to, that are being put in place at these places. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here. Stop by anytime, Kevin. Yeah, thanks for having me. I know me. a lot fun. of folks uh, learned a lot and how how you can get into the industry by following the Grateful Dead, or yeah. in this case, now Fish. Yeah. Um, yeah, stop by anytime. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cheers. And thanks to Danny McConnell from McConnell Farms. Taste the way you remember. Thanks, Danny, for everything you do for the podcast. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.